The Missouri House is back, and lawmakers are taking part in one of the strangest and most consequential legislative sessions in the Show Me State's modern history. And not everybody is happy with the way things are going. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid talks about her frustrations with how GOP leadership is handling the last two weeks of session. The Springfield Democrat also discusses what she wants to see in a COVID-19 policy push. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City is St. Louis Public Radio Statehouse correspondent Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us as our very special guest today is Missouri's House Minority Leader, uh, Representative Crystal Quaid. Uh, she's talking with us from her office in Jefferson City. The, the House is actually still in session right now as we're talking to her. The House is back in session. The Senate is back in session in this unprecedented time of COVID-19. What are your impressions about the legislature being in session now? And what are your feelings about whether the legislature should be in session now? Yeah, well, um, as you well know, um, when the Speaker of the House said that we were going to reconvene to come back, he said that we would be here to deal with the state budget um, and also things related to COVID-19. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on whether or not it's the appropriate time to come back to do the budget um, because things are so unknown right now um, with the federal monies and where we where the Missouri economy is. Um, but then also the discussion around COVID-19 was what we're supposed to be here to do. Um, Everything that we've been working on is the complete opposite of that outside of the budget. We did pass the budget out of the house um, and that will be ongoing, but everything else has been these giant omnibus bills, some upwards of a thousand pages, 75 bills rolled in together into one. And none of these have anything to do with the pandemic at hand. So uh, to be very frank with you all, it's been pretty frustrating. Um, I have constituents reaching out to me every day asking for help with small businesses, help with um, you know just everything that folks are dealing with right now. And instead we are working on legislation that has nothing to do with the crisis. Particularly, I know that the house is debating uh, a pretty large crime bill right now. Um, and it seems as though lawmakers are um, attempting to relate it to COVID-19 in some way. Can you talk a little bit about the frustrations of this massive bill, first and foremost? Um, and it's a little confusing what's all getting put in it. Can you just talk about the way that that presents challenges um, for you all, as well as the people of Missouri? Um, as we see these bills getting rolled into one. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, every legislative year, the last couple of weeks of session, we do see these larger omnibus bills rolled together. What's been different about this year, um, especially during a uh, crisis in the first week we were back, we had a stay at home order, um, is that we are seeing what are called House Committee substitute bills roll out in an unprecedented manner. What that means is these 
the several bills, we take a Senate bill and add a whole bunch of House bills onto it and then present that to the committee as one giant bill. And then in that committee, they're making amendments and then it's coming to the House floor and more bills are getting added on. So um, it's not traditional in that way. So we are seeing much larger bills um, in the committee section versus the House section. The problem with that is, you know, on the House floor, when we're adding these bills onto these giant bills as amendments, there's an opportunity for discussion. There's an opportunity for all 163 legislators to ask questions about these giant omnibus bills. When they're in committee and it's presented as one bill, it is so much harder to track what individual bills are loaded onto it. Add to that, you know, we've had while the stay-at-home order was lifted on Monday, we are still discouraging folks from being in the building. And so in those committees, we're not seeing members of the public come to testify to break down those individual pieces either. So um, I will say overarchingly, it has just been impossible to follow what's going on. And um, I have to give a shout out to Representative Donna Berenger, who's on one of these committees that's been dealing with these omnibus bills, who called it exactly like it is. You know, we make sausage, but what is happening right now in Jefferson City is so egregious. Our legislators simply cannot read this legislation. Staff in the building is at a skeleton level, meaning we don't have assistance in the building right now. The drafting staff is not here due to the safety risks. And so this is just, it's beyond comprehension what is happening right now. Um, and you'll probably hear the words that I uh, frustrated a whole lot in the next few minutes that we're talking. Have you had any guidance from the majority party about why these bills are being allowed on the floor? Absolutely none. And I will say that honestly, I, did, I like everyone else, found out we were coming back to session via Twitter. Um, so there has been very little communication. Um, it's different than the supplemental. When we came back for the supplemental budget, there was a lot of discussion between the parties about safety measures and what we would be doing. Um, this time, it's definitely, there's not conversation. Um, and so, you know, what we're trying to do is continue to remind everyone, uh, the speaker included, what he said on your exact show just last Friday. Well, let's talk about the stay-at-home order for a bit, even though that that's more of an executive branch decision. It, it's still kind of top of mind for elected officials. Um, as of Monday, most of the state's stay-at-home order was lifted. And I say most of the state because there are some local jurisdictions like St. Louis, St. Louis County, Kansas City, and Greene County that have stricter ordinances in play. What do you make of that decision? I know Democrats for years have been talking about the importance of local control, but I also know that in this instance, they've been taking a stance that there has to be uniformity because if you have quote unquote local control, then the stay at home orders kind of lose their value. Yeah, and I, I think that you're exactly right in calling out that kind of double conversation that we've been having. Um, but I will tell you that my local municipalities and, and the local hospitals and health leaders have been speaking to the detriment of the piecemeal order that the governor originally did. So uh, you all probably know that I was very outspoken in the beginning of all of this, asking the governor to do a statewide order. Um, and a lot of that came from our local health leaders discussing specifically about, I'll talk about Springfield where I live. We are a regional health hub. And um, whether or not Greene County did its own ordinance, 
all of the counties around us, we had folks coming to Springfield for services. And if their orders were different than ours, that was affecting the health outcomes for the, for the whole region. And so um, I was a very vocal supporter of, of, of the governor coming out in front of all of this and doing a statewide order so that we could have some, um, some continuity between our health providers and making sure that everybody was being protected effectively. I would say with that, on the reverse of that, um, I, I still have concerns um, in how he's piecemealing opening it up. You know, we have these arbitrary lines that we've created for these counties and municipalities and walking across this Im imaginary line doesn't change anything. Viruses obviously don't adhere to that. Um, so I do have some concerns in, in the way that he's rolling it back out. Not to mention that we have continued to see higher increases in cases, yesterday being the most cases in one day that we have seen as a state. Um, some folks definitely, you know, looking at these municipalities um, have obvious concerns of this happening too quickly. Some people may say the higher cases is because the testing has gone up and that you have to look at the hospitalizations and the ICUs as a better metric. Uh, what do you what do you say to that point? Um, I would, you know, definitely say that the testing has increased, but um, one would can also say that we don't have enough testing still. Um, and we're hearing that from our health leaders that that needs to continue um, to have accessibility there. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to see these num numbers level off. And um, that's just simply what's not happening. Um, as I've said many times d during uh, this situation, we need to be listening to the health leaders and the experts of what they're asking. Um, and I think that looking at the different county orders that are still in place is very indicative of what those health leaders are saying, because that's where they are. Um, that's where the, the large hospitals are and the folks who are really leading the charge in this. I'm going to actually play a clip now from Governor Parson from his press availability from Monday with him talking about uh, kind of the principal decision to roll back the stay-at-home order for most of the state. I've said many times, this reopening is a gradual process. Things are going to look different for a while, but we are on the right track. It is encouraging to see businesses safely reopening and abiding by the guidelines. And we must continue to prior prioritize the health and safety of our families, friends and fellow Missourians throughout this process. So again, use common sense, social distance, make safe, smart, and responsible decisions. So in addition to responding to what the governor said, if the Democrats were in control of the legislative and executive branch, what would be the metrics that you would want to see to start tapering down the, the stay-at-home order? Yeah, um, so first in response to, to what the governor said um, at the press avail, um, I definitely don't disagree with him that we need to be reopening the economy and we need to be finding safe ways to do that. I mean, my husband is a small business owner and, and my own personal family has been very affected by this, as well as all the employees that work for him, you know, so I get it from a firsthand perspective. Um, but what what is I think frustrating for me when, when I hear him say things like that is he's just passing the buck again uh, to the local local folks instead of actually creating a plan. And that is problematic, particularly when we're looking at the economy of, of you know, if you've got businesses who are in multiple counties who have different regulations per county, that is going to affect how they can bring their employees back, all their procedures, you know, I could go on and on about that. Um, in terms of metrics that, that I think we should be looking at, you know, 
the governor has laid out metrics in his four point or four pillar plan or whatever he's calling that, um, that we should be adhering to. And I simply don't feel like those are being met. Um, you know, he's saying tests are going to be everywhere and accessible everywhere. That is simply just not the case. I know that we have seen an increase in testing, but I'm still being told every day that folks are having a hard time getting tests. Um, and so, you know, I think that those metrics are fine. Um, I honestly haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what I would add to them if I was in his position, because um, I'm definitely just the minority leader in the House. Um, but I think that we need to be actually adhering to those and paying attention to those numbers. And just frankly, the data does not support this kind of quick, early, open release. And to the governor's statement of, you know, this being a slow, gradual rollout, um, I appreciate the businesses that are doing that. But frankly, not everyone is. And that's part of the problem of not having a statewide plan and how, that, how we get back to business. Because, you know, I'm in Jefferson City right now, vastly different than Greene County. And I can walk down the street and see restaurants where people are not social distancing, where people are not wearing masks. And I understand those businesses are trying to stay afloat. And I totally support that. But I also think that we can do that in a safe manner. Um, and that is one of the biggest, you know, issues with the way that this rollout has been. We're even hearing from the governor that it's it's very important as we reopen um, businesses in the state that there's an emphasis still on social distancing. Obviously, the House floor, there's 163 members. It's pretty impossible to uh, distance yourselves in a safe way. But the governor also says that your, your work is essential. How are you is the House um, trying to adhere by these social distancing rules? I know that some legislators are wearing masks, some are not. I will say that I, you know, while there have been a few measures made, and, and I'm happy to discuss those, there, I feel like there have really not been any measures uh, or efforts made to adhere to social distancing uh, here in the House. You know, we're using just a couple uh, House committee rooms instead of all of them, you know, so that is the one change that I've seen. And of course, we have the National Guard taking our temperature when we come in, making sure that we don't have a temperature. But beyond that, nothing else has changed. And as you pointed out, many members are not wearing masks, um, and we are sitting right next to each other on the floor. You know, it's, it's put us in a situation where either we risk that, that closeness and potential exposure, um, or we, if we do so, then we can't advocate for our people. And I agree with the governor that we are essential and we have been carved out of that um, then from the stay-at-home order originally we were. Um, and I definitely think that we could be here and do it in a safe way. During the supplemental, as you all know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were here and adhering to social distancing guidelines and we were um, taking very serious precautions. Um, now that we're back, it is absolutely the, the complete opposite. And you know, a lot of my, my members, the Democrats are wearing masks, um, but um, as, as the CDC has said, the masks will protect other folks from anything that we may have. And so, you know, it is a bit um, concerning that folks are not trying to protect each other. There were photographs yesterday of the governor appearing in places with masks and without masks. And I'm going to play a clip now from his availability on Monday about his philosophy on that point. I think it's up to the individuals. I, I don't think that's government's role to mandate who wears a mask and who don't. I think it works perfectly simple. The business owners there provided masks for the employees. They want them to wear them. That's the way it should be. If you want to wear a mask and you go into business, then wear a mask. Uh, but if you don't, I don't think it's government's place to regulate that. Now, that's an interesting point because Jacqueline and I are both Illinois natives. We like to talk about that all the time. My understanding is the Illinois governor has mandated that you have to wear a mask when you go out in public right now. 
So what do you make of the governor's comments? And do you think that there should be requirements in place for people to wear masks in certain businesses passed down on the state level? You know, when it comes to mandating something like that, we've got to be careful. There are things like, you know, if you're a survivor of domestic violence, per se, and having a covering over your face or feeling like you might be choked or not able to breathe, that's going to affect whether or not you're able to wear a mask comfortably. And, and I would agree with the governor that that's not necessarily our role to jump in and mandate. But what's frustrating about right now, and particularly to the governor in that question of him wearing one or not wearing one, we are the leaders of our state. And we should be doing everything possible to lead by example and to show that we care about the citizens. There's been a lot of conversation today on the House floor about personal responsibility um, regarding the Second Amendment and a whole bunch of other things. I wanna say that personal responsibility as leaders, as the governor is, is to show best practices and show that we care about those around us and we care about the safety and the health well-being of the citizens of Missouri. And so I am wearing a mask not because I enjoy it and not because I necessarily think I've actually tested negative to the antibody testing, but I know that me being on a screen and me being in public, I am a leader for the state of Missouri. And I really wish that the governor would take that perspective more seriously. We'll be right back on Politically Speaking with House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. And we're back on Politically Speaking with House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. I'm going to turn the questioning over to Jacqueline because she's going to be asking a series of queries about the budget. The House just recently passed their version of the budget bills. Um, and when it was being decided whether or not the legislature would come back, um, initially Governor Parsons seemed to indicate that it might make more sense um, for lawmakers to work on a budget during special session. But we heard from Speaker Har, we heard from uh, Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden that it was the duty of lawmakers to get a budget passed by May 8th, um, regardless of, of the governor's uh, statements that it may just be a better choice to come back during special session. So what do you make of that? Um, is that how you interpret the Constitution that um, lawmakers have to get something passed by May 8th? So um, there has, in 1997, the House did not pass the budget by the constitutional deadline. And the Speaker himself, um, right before we came back, said on a, on a, it may have been your show or an interview he did with the Chamber in Springfield, I don't, I don't remember, but um, I remember him saying publicly that there is a, a lot of um, disagreement on that section of the Constitution. And it was his belief that if we just passed one budget bill by the constitutional deadline, then the governor could call us back in for a special session to do the rest of that. Um, either way, however folks interpret it, we know in 1997 that it did not get done and we came back for a special session and it was completed and nothing happened. Um, I would have to agree with the governor in this scenario that we don't have an accurate representation of where we are as a state um, as, as you all well know, we, even before the pandemic, didn't come to a consensus revenue estimate agreement, which is where everybody agrees on how much money we have to spend. That didn't happen even before this economic meltdown in the state of Missouri. And then trying to come back, we had the Senate saying that we were 400 million upside down, the House saying 700 million upside down, and then we've got Federal CARES Act money coming in. We don't know how much we're going to get. Now we're hearing that there's going to be another stimulus package from the federal government, and there's just so much that is uncertain right now. And 
everyone agrees, even the budget chairman said on the floor, then in a couple of weeks, we will have a much better un understanding of where we are as a state with the revenue that we have to spend. And so I, you know, I was pushing early on when this discussion was happening that we should wait. We should wait and come back, just as the governor alluded to that we should, when we have a better understanding. What, what is very frustrating about the process that's gone on is we have made, you know, we're making all of these changes extreme cuts to higher education and you know k-12 funding for transportation um, and all of these other things that potentially could people could lose jobs we have we have cuts across the board for state departments and you know if they don't have a specific place to cut them they're gonna let people go and so then we're gonna have a few weeks of potential layoffs and all these other things that could happen and then we very well may just come back in a couple weeks and change it all again so it seems almost pointless to have done it um, especially when you've got the Republican governor saying in his administration saying that we don't know where we are financially and what money's coming down. Um, you know, so we'll have to wait and see what happens. Obviously, um, the Republican leadership will, will decide if and when we come back, but it just has been um, a really difficult conversation when every debate around the budget has been, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Because you're having those conversations, do you think it's inevitable that lawmakers are going to have to come back at some point before June 30 to work further on the budget? I believe that we will. Um, now, obviously, I no longer serve on the budget committee, um, and I have, haven't been a part of all of those discussions, but the ones that I have been a part of, it seems like that's the general consensus from everyone. You know, one thing that hasn't really been talked about during this entire budgetary debate that's being talked a lot about in St. Louis County and a lot in other states like Mississippi, is the fact that it appears that uh, Governor Parson has generally free reign about how to divvy up the CARES Act money. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion or controversy on either side of the aisle about that when that's become a thermonuclear discussion in those other jurisdictions. Why hasn't that been more of a discussion about how much authority has been given over to the executive branch to divvy up literally billions of dollars to deal with COVID-19. Yeah, I think that um, you have been interpreting that, that there hasn't been a lot of discussion around that. Um, you know, early in the supplemental, you may remember that the House Democrats tried to give a whole lot of authority to the governor. Um, you know, our, our perspective at the time, and I, and I think that, um, you know, a lot of that plays into what's going on right now, is we have folks in crisis. And we have been on the House floor since 10 o'clock today talking about things like whether or not you can use brass knuckles legally in the state of Missouri. Um, and we have people who don't have jobs right now, who can't pay rent, who are literally going on their second month, it's, it's May 5th right now, without being able to pay their rent, um, and businesses that don't know if they can keep their doors open. And so there is an extreme level of urgency that unfortunately the legislature is just not taking right now. Do I think that the uh, governor's administration should have oversight? Absolutely. Um, the nice thing about the CARES Act money is that we have to track every single penny of it. And if we don't spend it the way that we're supposed to, the state of Missouri has to pay it back. Also, I will say that, you know, the governor has this oversight committee that thankfully he has now added more than just white Republican men onto that committee um, after being called out by the media. Uh, he did make those changes. Um, you know, and we've got ranking uh, member Kip Kendrick uh, from our side on that committee, um, as well as Senator, I believe Senator Carla May was added. We, are, we do have some oversight. Is it enough? 
probably not. But at the same time, you know, in any crisis, you have to weigh risks and you have to weigh um, what, what's at stake. And when I've got, when we've got a legislature spending hours debating brass knuckles versus the COVID-19 pandemic, I, um, I'm going to err on the side of giving the authority out so that we can help Missourians. What are some other things that you think the legislature should be working on? Um, what are some other bills that you think are COVID related that are possible to get done within the time frame that you do have? Um, there, and Jacqueline, there's so many things that we could be doing since we're already here. Um, I will say, you know, one big thing that I know our business leaders is asking for is for Wayfair to get done. Um, that is the online sales tax that, you know, our chambers of commerce and so many business leaders have been asking for for years. Um, this year, we're finally to a point where we could have potentially got it passed. Um, and that since everyone has switched to online purchasing, the state of Missouri is missing it. We've already been missing out for years on that, that revenue, but now so even more. And, we are, the speaker himself said in an interview with the local chamber of commerce that it was too complicated for us to get done this year and we're going to be focusing on COVID-19 and he didn't think that we would actually have time. Well, here we are <laughs> where we're again wasting time on a whole lot of other things. That's a bill that we could get done that would help Missouri, that would bring money in, um, you know, to dive into the weeds for the budget for a moment. We're about to borrow like $700 million from the CARES funding to be able to pay tax returns through House Bills uh, 2016, 17, and 18, which we just talked about this, this week. And if we're in a situation where we can't pay tax returns to Missourians, we need to be coming up with ways to have revenue in the state. And that's a great example of something that we could be doing right now that I believe is related to COVID-19. Other things um, that were particular to the budget, uh, you may remember Representative West Rogers offering an amendment um, on the budget that dealt specifically with grants to small business owners, uh, where we would take the federal money and allocate that out to our small business owners. We have a lot who didn't qualify for the PPP loans, um, and um, um, this would have been an avenue to directly give money to small business leaders in, in the state of Missouri. And that amendment was voted down on the House floor. I um, believe that in the Senate, it was added back on uh, by Senator uh, Representative Lauren Arthur was able to get that amendment on. We'll see where, where that lands, but that's a great example where, you know, the Democrats are con continuing to try to offer things specific to COVID-19 that help our small businesses, that help Missouri citizens, and the majority party is just not doing it. They would rather talk about things that are unrelated. Um, the budget chair, Cody Smith, I believe he said it on the floor that a good thing about this budget was that K through 12 education was fully funded. And I've heard from um, some I, I, some Democrats that that's not necessarily true. Um, in your interpretation of, of the budget, is K through 12 education fully funded? So that is a large discussion on the foundation formula for our state. Um, but as you may know, you know, a few years ago, the foundation formula was drastically altered. And we essentially took the bar from being high and lowered it so that we could say we're fully funding it by cutting millions of dollars to what we should be giving to the K through 12 formula. Um, also adding to that, transportation for our schools is not part of the foundation formula. So this year is a great example where they're saying, yes, we have fully funded K-12 education, that's great, but then slashing millions from K-12 transportation. And so as anyone who handles a budget for a business knows, or even their own household knows, that if you're getting cut on one side, you're gonna have to take that money from somewhere else to then be able to pay for that transportation. And so um, when, 
I feel like saying fund, fully funding the foundation formula is, a, is an overused phrase because we're not factoring in things that are vital, especially to our rural communities um, that many have had to switch to four-day school weeks because they don't have transportation funding and they're not able to pay their teachers a wage that makes them competitive. And so that's why I, I believe many Democrats continue to say that we're not fully funding education. In the last few minutes we have, I want to talk about a couple of ballot initiatives that may come down the pike in the next week or two. Let's start off with one dealing with Medicaid first. My understanding is House Budget Chairman Cody Smith has put forth basically what amounts to a work requirement amendment for Medicaid, and it's running kind of in parallel with this initiative that's almost certainly going to make the ballot to expand Medicaid. And it seems like this is going to be like the GOP response to this, because I think that they probably think it's going to pass. And by it, I mean the Medicaid expansion initiative. And they want something to counteract its effect, basically. Yes. Uh, so this, again, it just adds to, um, and, and you've heard me say this before, I believe last time I was on the podcast, that we are continuing to see what the will of voters and what voters are asking us to do being preempted by the legislature. Um, I'm looking at this as, as exactly another one of those things. What this uh, HJR that the budget chair is presenting or presented this morning does is essentially three things. So the first piece of it is saying that um, 26 year olds, just like under the ACA, are able to stay on their parents' insurance. So it's actually got language from the ACA in the first part of this bill, which is just interesting that we're even trying to, um, well, one, the Republicans have been talking about how the ACA Obamacare is so bad for so long, and been trying to repeal it. Well, this actually takes the same provision from that, and that's the first piece of this. Um, it seems what's frustrating about that is I, I feel like folks are trying to mislead voters um, because if you're reading just that, it's like, okay, that's great. That's what people want. But then it goes on and the, the next two pieces of this are, one, it makes that Medicaid dollars cannot go to out-of-state Missourians. Again, that sounds great on the surface, but to get in the weeds, hospitals pay a voluntary FRA tax, which is a tax that they pay themselves into a fund that then they get reimbursed for Medicaid dollars through that fund. Hospitals like Children's Mercy or very specialized hospitals that are regional hubs for, um, for a lot of very specific healthcare needs. When a kiddo would go to uh, Children's Mercy, they may not live in Missouri. The hospital incurs those costs, but are then taking money from the FRA to, to reimburse. Again, this is not general revenue dollars. This is a voluntary tax that the hospitals pay. So that's the second piece of that. Um, we heard many Republicans actually today in committee talk about how they were very concerned about this because without that FRA money paying for those kiddos who need those services, these hospitals um, could very well lose the services that they are able to provide. And we're talking about very specialized cancer treatments and things that, um, that need to happen for the regional health care of so many people. And then the next piece of this is the, the work requirement piece. Um, and so what that specifically goes to the age-blind disabled population, you know, in Missouri right now, um, you essentially cannot have Medicaid as an adult unless you fall into that category. And so um, this adds an extra burden to an already uh, problematic group of folks that we're talking about. What is really frustrating about that piece for us is looking back through what the administration has um, 
been dealing with with Medicaid. You know, we had 100,000 children lose their coverage. Um, and it turns out a lot of that was over paperwork issues and the administration not actually sending the right letters out or getting them back in time. And then they're adding an extra layer to this where with a work requirement, people are having to prove that they're working by sending in all this documentation and adding these barriers to folks, transportation costs. I mean, we could go on. Somebody gets diagnosed with cancer um, and, and cannot work. And there's a few weeks there before they're able to, to get on. You know, there's just extra barriers that, that this is adding into. So this bill, is in my opinion not only a preemption for the expansion because the expansion will cover this new group of people that are not currently covered um it's also there's some less than, than desirable stuff in there particularly around the hospital payment piece but then i also feel like everybody knows that folks want more health care right in the state of missouri polling for medicaid expansion is is very overwhelming in positive favor of that and we can look at the 350,000 signatures that were turned in um, the legislature is kind of all in agreement that we we feel like it's going to pass and so just like with clean missouri except now they're doing it beforehand they feel like folks are going to vote for this so they're trying to get ahead of the curve and and change what that bill will do well you mentioned clean missouri and that's the other thing that i think is up top of mind we've talked about we've talked about the clean missouri redistricting system on this show ad nauseum for the last two years so i'm not going to re-explain it go look at back ar archives we actually talked about this when you were on last time um, and right now, the bill to basically undo the clean Missouri redistricting system is sitting in a House committee. I believe that there was supposed to be a committee hearing today, but it was canceled and it may be rescheduled for another day. This is this is probably not the question we we're expecting. Do you think the House is actually going to take this up? Because I have talked to a couple of like people on the outside of this process who are like, it's maybe not worth it to do the ballot initiative. We'll take our chances with the governor appointing people to the bipartisan commission that may overturn the demographer's recommendation. And that may be the strategy going forward, as opposed to running a ballot initiative that may not actually pass. What have you been hearing about that, even from maybe some of your Republican colleagues? So I've, I've honestly been hearing both sides of that. You know, um, before we came back, the, the rumor was that, um, you know, it wasn't going to come up at all um, for reasons, as you just said. But then also, you know, we're in the middle of a once in a century health pandemic. And what do we do when we come back? We have uh, hearings to overturn the will of voters for something completely unrelated to health, completely under, unrelated to small businesses. Um, and so when we came back, the feeling was like, well, they might not actually do this because frankly, it looks atrocious to the outside world, to, to the rest of the state of Missouri that we are spending our time dealing with this. Um, but as I've already stated many times, you know, we got back here and what we're working on has nothing to do with the health crisis. Um, and so of course we did have a public hearing or have a, a hearing last week where no members of the public attended because we are under a stay at home order and the bill passed it out of committee completely down party lines. Um, now you are correct that today there was a rules hearing which is the next stage that it has to go through. And I believe they gaveled in and gaveled out and didn't take it up. Um, it is noticed up for tomorrow um, for that rules committee again. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know that I can give you a one way I'm feeling or another of whether or not this is going to happen. Um, politically, you know, it, it's, 
it's really uh, surprising to me that this is a, a topic of conversation right now, but also we know that this has been a number one priority for the majority caucus since since session started. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're waiting to see. Um, I can tell you on like the political side of things, we folks are activated and working and calling people and asking them not to not to move forward with this. Um, but I, again, today we have been talking about brass knuckles, so I really have no idea what's going to happen uh, in the coming days. Well, Leader Quaid, I, I know that you have to get back to the floor, so thank you so much for your time this afternoon. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Jacqueline? At Driscoll and PR. And Leader Quaid, how could people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? It's at Crystal underscore Quaid, Q-U-A-D-E. There's another Crystal Quaid out there who took my actual handle. So Crystal underscore, underscore Quaid. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well. Yeah, but-